Hello and welcome to a special episode of The Midpoint. We're doing things a little differently this week and instead of inviting a celebrity guest, an expert or even one of the Logan family, I thought maybe it's time we heard from some people we might not be so familiar with but who have extraordinary stories to tell. Extraordinary stories of mental toughness, resilience in the face of adversity and helping others. I was partly inspired by one of my broadcasting heroes, Oprah Winfrey. And I thought back to the incredible interviews Oprah did in the early days of The Oprah Show and how as a teenager I was captivated by the stories she found. So I did a little deep dive into her back catalogue on YouTube, got lost for a few hours watching some of those interviews and realised that sometimes it's the people we least expect who might be the most inspirational and life-affirming. Today I'm sitting down with Ed and Lois Jackson. Ed was a professional rugby player, so very accustomed to putting his body on the line. And in 2017, he and his partner Lois were looking forward to their upcoming nuptials. But far away from the rugby field, a split-second misjudgment changed his body and his mind forever. Ed was told he would never walk again, let alone play rugby. But fast forward six years, and not only is he walking into this studio to chat with me today, but he's also the first quadriplegic to summit Mira Peak, which stands at a staggering 6,476 metres. Together, Ed and Lois now run a charity called Millimetres to Mountains, which enables other people who are overcoming major physical or mental trauma to experience the transformative power of nature for themselves. Their story is all about life kicking you an enormous curveball and deciding that you're going to play it. So let's meet the Jacksons. Ed and Lois Jackson, welcome to The Midpoint. And you are part of a special strand of episodes. I wanted to interview people who'd done extraordinary things or had extraordinary things happen to them and their lives change in a way that they could never have foreseen. And they've done something incredible with it. And you certainly fit into that category as individuals and as a couple. So thank you for being on. First of all, how did you two meet? Good question. So um, (laughs) I was at university in Bath and Ed was in the Bath Rugby Academy and uh, we just had uh, some mutual friends that were dating, went to a fancy dress party which was themed what you want to be when you grow up and so I was obviously dressed as a ballerina (laughs) and Ed was dressed as a fireman (laughs) and then that was it, really. He uh, he bought me a pack of four cellars and a kebab. <laughs> <laughs> and that Get was the way to Oh, I'm heart. glad you said that because there's lots of things you could have said about Feynman and his hose. So <laughs> at least at least we kept it clean from the start. So it was, it was if not love at first sight, there were certainly uh, fancy dress costumes that kind of collided and worked well that night. And here you are many years later. So you were almost childhood sweethearts. You were very young when you met. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? We, we were actually... We just missed the whole online dating sort of apps thing, and I, I don't know if it, that's a. That, I think that is a blessing, considering how much how many of my single mates sort of are so uh, so addicted to that or traumatized by it. <laughs> you know, there's obviously some great stories as well, but um, yeah, 13 years we've been together. Well done. So <laughs> pressure was on then. Um, 13 years we've been together. So yeah, since we, since we were kids, really. I think at the time you don't feel like a kid, no. like you've got it sorted and everything. But really, we were pretty young. So well, you were very sporty. Both of you, obviously, you were at the Bath Rugby Academy, became a professional rugby player. You were a very uh, talented netballer, playing a lot of sport to a, to a high level. So uh, there was a, a, a great meeting of sporting minds, I imagine, there, as well as uh, other attractions. So that was a very, a very active life, lots going on. And rugby was going well for you, Ed. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it wasn't the most straightforward career, but it was amazing that I played for 10 years professionally. I started off at Bath, which was my hometown club. So that was pretty cool as a kid growing up. I used to go down to the wreck and, and then all of a sudden I was running out onto the pitch and I'd had a few injuries. I'd like recurring shoulder operations and, um, but I ended up playing in the Premiership for, for quite a long time and then over in, in the Welsh League as well, in the Pro 14 for the Dragons. So, yeah, I really enjoyed my time. I mean, I can't say that it's probably the most positive thing I've ever done for my body when I'm sat here because it's, it takes its toll, especially playing in the back row for that long. But um, I wouldn't change it for anything. I feel very fortunate to have done it at all, really. But your career was cut short. Yeah. So uh, 2017, I was recovering from a shoulder operation, another shoulder operation, but I was actually looking, career was looking good at that point. Um, I'd been playing in Wales for 
two and a half years. I just signed for another two years. There was talk of me going on the summer tour with Wales, which would have been quite funny given my accent. And, really and also annoyed. you played, obviously, schoolboy, under 18 and under 16 for England. Yeah, I did all of that for England and then um, potentially going on tour with Wales. So it was great. We were loving living in Cardiff. And I think at, at that age, 27, you know, I was probably playing the best rugby in my career. But yeah, I was recovering from a shoulder operation, went round to a family friend's house, went back to my parents' house for the weekend and uh, went down to their pool after a barbecue and they had a waterfall in one end, uh, which was creating ripples on the surface anyway. I wasn't obviously not really concentrating, but I took my shirt off, turned around and dived straight in where the waterfall hit the water, thinking that the it was deep, but what I thought was sort of seven or eight feet deep turned out to be three feet deep. So I hit, I landed on the top of my head and yeah, I mean, I'd hit my head many times. So I kind of knew what that was like from rugby, but this was something else that, you know, I wasn't unconscious but, you know, eyes had gone and, and I just remember sort of coming round, sort of gathering my senses and then going to stand up. And that's when I realised something was seriously wrong because I couldn't move. So I was just there sort of on my side, but underwater, confused and then very quickly panicking about what had happened and what had tra- what transpired. Luckily, my dad was there and one of my friends, they pulled me to the surface, but I had very badly broken my neck dislocated my neck at the C6, C7 level, which is right at the bottom of of your neck. And that had rendered me completely paralysed from the shoulders down. So first of all, if they hadn't been there, you would undoubtedly have drowned. Yeah, definitely. And that was the first time I got lucky. And then the next time was in the ambulance. Uh, It was, you know, a 15 minute journey to hospital. I remember lying in the back of the hospital, mapping it out in my head. It was my local area, so I kind of knew it quite well. But it wasn't until a year later that my dad told, thought I was in the headspace to tell me that actually that 15 minute journey, they were waiting at hospital for me for two and a half hours because the ambulance had to pull over three times to resuscitate me. So yeah, it was very, very nearly a completely different story um, and definitely adds a whole other layer of gratitude to uh, being here at all, really. So your family were ahead of you, they'd gone ahead and they were waiting for the, what they knew was a 15 minute journey, not knowing what was going on inside that ambulance. And Lois, where were you at this point? So I just finished playing a netball game and uh, yeah, with a couple of mates, just opened my first beer about to have a good night. And then yeah, I got a call from Ed's stepmum, who was very calm and yeah, told me that I needed to head to hospital, that Ed had hurt himself, didn't really tell me the details. And then yeah, it wasn't until I got to A&E when well, he probably arrived just as I got there because of the distance. But yeah, I saw him and knew that something was just seriously wrong straight away. I think he was just the look in his eyes. And I guess from my side, I've just never seen him vulnerable before. Like, he was this huge six-foot-four rugby player, and, yeah, you could just tell the sadness in his eyes and couldn't move anything at all. So, yeah, it was a huge, huge shock. And, yeah, it's so weird when you're in that situation, you just don't really know how you're going to react. Um, but in front of him, I was just trying to act completely normal and just be like, it's going to be OK, it's fine. And it wasn't until actually I left seeing him and I was with his stepmom, which I weirdly shouted to her, I want his babies, which I don't know <laughs> where that came from because I'm not maternal in the slightest. But I think my knowledge of like spinal cord injuries was just that that was affected and we had our whole future. I think I was just thinking about the future and how different it was going to be. And then, yeah, we we... We then just kind of had to stick into rehab and recovery and what that was going to look like. And I just did a deep dive into spinal cord injuries. Because it was quite quick that you were getting a prognosis after the drama, if you like, of Mm. that first kind of few days in hospital had settled down and the the, the doctors were dealing with you. They told you quite quickly that things Mm. were not looking good. Yeah, I had... um... I had an emergency operation to what had happened is my di- I'd hit my head so hard that my, the disc in between my vertebrae had exploded and shards of that disc had cut my spinal cord or lodged into my spinal cord. So an amazing neurosurgeon called Mr. Neil Barua. Luckily, I was close to Southmead Hospital, which is like a leading neurological centre. You know, if this happens on holiday, like you hear so many times, I there's again, I probably wouldn't be here. But he performed a seven-hour operation picking bits of bone out my spinal cord with you know, micro- microscopes and robots and stuff. So he, I owe him a lot too. But 
when I woke up the next day, the only way, the only thing you can really tell, or the only prognosis you really you can really get from nerve damage or spinal cord injury is how you recover. So they monitor you every twenty four hours for a week or nine days, and they do something called an Asia test, which is American Spinal Injury Assessment test temperature, uh, sensation, movement, and based on that that nine days of results they'll tell you if you have a complete injury or an incomplete and what sort of recovery you can expect um, and I was told after nine days that I had a complete injury and so I was hoping that I could get the use of my arms back to use a wheelchair to a certain extent because my upper body is still affected as well um, but there was pretty much no chance that I would be walking again so that obviously hit pretty hard. That's what they told you after nine days? Yeah yeah and at this point, you're still very sick in hospital. And um, the thought process for you at this point, how how quickly did it turn to proving people <laughs> that that might not be the case? Um, they might have got it wrong. Surprisingly quickly, like almost mid-sentence. <laughs> it was, um, I, it, I was still in intensive care, obviously. And I think that we had all been thinking it. But no one had wanted to say it, mm -hmm. and actually, someone verbalising it, being the being the surgeon. Who was in the room? Um, it was actually just me and well, you, you weren't in the room, were you? My mum. Your mum. Mum was, was just outside. Yeah, it was actually just me. There was the surgeon, the the nurse uh, who's doing the ward round, and the hospital psychologist who they brought with them, which was kind of the first red flag. I was mm -hmm. like, why is he here? Mm -hmm. um, but then, yeah, my mum came in, and yeah, she was just in tears and. But I remember thinking then that by saying it, he's he laid the foundations, like set this is ground zero, you know this is how it is, and I just thought I've got to try and do everything I can to try and get better. Not because I will, because I probably won't. But at least if I've done everything I can, then in six months' time, a year's time, if I am quadriplegic and it is a complete injury, and my wife and um, or fiance at the time, or mum or whoever's having to look after me. That's fine because it was out of my hands because I've done everything I can. But if I've laid here and felt sorry for myself and not tried to get better, I'll never be able to forgive myself for it then affecting their lives as well. That's a very selfless thought to have so quickly. I think I surprised myself with it, to be honest. It was... was he always a selfless uh, <laughs> <laughs> character before? It was weird. It was like the motivation for me to get myself better wasn't enough. I think up until that point that week, I had been feeling sorry for myself and you know what why me life's not fair so in those nine days you yeah did feel in those nine days yeah um there was a lot of self-pity I mean my head was all over the place and and I was trying to do my rehab and then hoping and visualizing moving my feet but then it wasn't until he said those words which should have been the worst thing that I've ever been told but it actually turned out to be the turning point at that point and then the next 48 hours after he told me that I just spent every waking moment trying to wiggle something and I just, it was like Kill Bill, like literally staring at my toes, trying to wiggle them. And um, I actually didn't think anything would happen. I just knew I couldn't leave anything up to chance. And it only took 48 hours, less than 48 hours until my toe flicked, which obviously they said there was going to be no recovery below the level of injury. Um, so I was expecting a bit of movement in my arms, but not my toe. No. So that meant that there was still a connection. That must have been a huge moment for you. Were you on your own at that moment when you managed? That to... was the moment my mum was outside because I remember shouting for her. I was like, "Mum, my toes wiggling, my toes wiggling. I need, I need you to come in and I need an independent toe adjudicator witness because <laughs> I can, I can see it moving, but I can't feel it. So I've still got no sensation. So I know I'm sending the message to my toe, mm -hmm. and it's actually moving when I'm sending the message. And I'd been having a lot of spasms and stuff up until that point. And weirdly, you get like phantom movement. So like, if you close your eyes, it feels like you're moving but you open your eyes and you're not moving at all. Mm -hmm. But this time it was actually moving. And and then I just carried on wiggling my toe because the last thing I wanted was for it to ever stop again, to lose <laughs> it again. But that must have been for you as well, Lois, um, a, a real kind of breakthrough moment in terms of what, what the potential was there for Ed and, and how he might be able to prove people wrong. Yeah, hugely. I think as soon as that happened, we just knew that the limits were off and that we could actually try way more than we initially planned. And then I think... At that stage, we were just kind of focusing on day by day and like really setting small goals for him to work on. And it is like millimetres, like, can you move your finger that tiny little bit more? Can you move the other toe? Can you move your foot? And then try not to think too far ahead, were we? And by that point, I'd left my job in Cardiff. 
scrambled around with Ed's mum to get the house on Airbnb so we could have some kind of income because obviously Ed's rugby career, we knew at that stage, was going to be over. And then, yeah, we just set on the journey that I basically became his full-time physio because sadly the NHS were in, absolutely incredible at the acute end in terms of like they saved his, his life and it was amazing but they just don't have the resource for physio. And knowing what you know from sport, both of you, yeah. you knew that that level of care and that physio, it wasn't good enough to have one physio session a week. You were going to have yeah. to have hours every day if you were going to get to the place you thought you could. Yeah, definitely. And um, we found some amazing allies within the system, you know, like doctors or physios that my dad's a retired GP as well and me coming from professional sport they couldn't look us in the eye and tell us that one hour of physio a week is all we need you know it's like come on and I'm also pulling up all these things on getting Siri to tell them because I can't move getting Siri to tell them what they're doing in America and in Japan for spinal cord injury research <laughs> this is why like, you're oh. still in hospital yeah well I'm still so you're in becoming, hospital you're becoming an expert um, immediately yeah. and kind of going yeah. into it which you, you would because suddenly you're thrust into this area that you need to become expert mm. on and you know you're both clever people who uh, previous occupations have always wanted the very best so you're bound to be curious yeah. about what's possible yeah becoming an expert and a real pain in the ass <laughs> <laughs> i think they're a winning combination yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but uh, but it's a it's an important point actually because a lot of people if you're told you know you're not going to recover like i was or if you're told that's all the physio you need why wouldn't you believe them why mm -hmm. wouldn't you but it's actually because of the resources and and you're getting worst case scenarios so that they're not opening themselves up to litigation all of these things luckily i had other input from people mm. and i had lois who's you know, very coordinated, understands, you know, sport, but also physio and rehab. So she was just watching the physios. And then when they left, she would just carry on all the movements with me. So I was getting much more input than I would have had normally, which made a massive difference. So how quickly were you back into this new kind of the home situation obviously had to change? You Airbnb'd the, your house. You moved in with your mum or your stepmum, did you? Yeah, my dad and my stepmum we yeah. moved in with. Yeah. And, they, and, they, and the house had to be adapted because at this point you were still using... Yeah, I was in a wheelchair, yeah. That was after four months. Luckily, my dad had built a house like three years before with my 90-year-old granddad in mind. So there was like rolling showers and like double handrails. It was like almost meant to be kind of weird. <laughs> um, but we got home in the wheelchair and they'd set up a bedroom on the ground floor. It's kind of upside down house and the living room's on the like first floor. Um, Again, bizarrely, you know, useful. Yeah, 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 yeah. Apart but, from he just also, wanted to be by the fridge. So. <laughs> the, the fridge was my first motivation to get up my first set of stairs. So they found me out of my wheelchair and I'd managed to bum shuffle up the stairs and I was like on the floor in the fridge. I was like, this is the only reason. I like a Labrador. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me, spend four months in hospital. That's all you're thinking about is decent food. So that was good motivation. But yeah, we lived with them for six months. Yeah. yeah. And it yeah. was in that time, I believe, from what I've read, that you had, which I think was a really honest conversation and one that I would immediately, if I was reading your story kind of cold, as a partner would be thinking, you went to speak to somebody about your relationship, didn't you? Which, mm. which was both incredibly brave and incredibly kind of candid of you to have that conversation, I felt. So tell, tell our listeners what happened. Like, yeah, I guess our relationship had changed in so many ways and it's actually... What well, Ed had changed in so many ways, and in so many good ways as well, like the selfless thing, definitely. But he wasn't came the out. bloke you met he in was... a ballerina dress. <laughs> he really wasn't, no. And so, and yeah, like physically, God, how much weight did you lose? 20, Twenty-five kilos. Yeah, it was or something like in, yeah, ridiculous amount. So, um, and and I think we've spoken about this since, but I think Ed was so focused on the goal of like improving and getting better that I think we, we we both didn't put enough time into our relationship side. And I think sexually as well, that that was affected. Um, there was a lot of unknowns. Yeah, and so that kind of got put to the side and I realised that that was such a big part of what I need to get out of a relationship, like the touch and the love. And I kind of got to the point where I didn't want to bother Ed um, because he's been through enough, right? And I was going through my own difficulties in my head but just trying to put on a brave face and um and yeah. I suppose as well I'm imagining that you're feeling 
I can't even talk to really kind of family around here because they're going to think I'm incredibly selfish, even though they probably wouldn't. But your your perception might have been that that would seem like a very low down kind of issue right now. You know? Exactly. What yeah. are you thinking about you for, Lois? <laughs> exactly. And I spent like the whole time saying it's not about me. Like, and I and I truly believed that it wasn't about me. You know, I I wanted it to be about Ed, but then I think you realise that actually by putting yourself on the back foot like that then actually it's not great for either of you because I wasn't in my best place. And then Ed was just worrying about me being in a, in a good mm. place. So actually I think what I've learned now is that you do need to put some time into your own emotions and, and what you want to get out of things, out of life, and, and that will make your relationship happier mm. if you're both individually happy. So, yeah, and then I, I had just sought some help with a, a specialist, it was spe- sex therapist and a relationship therapist, and... Use that first session as just like literally an offload and then, ground. and then run away. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it gave me the confidence to just speak out to Ed and just say, I really want to focus back on us and like start this all from scratch, really. Were you having thoughts, Ed, at all that Lois might feel that long term this, because, you know, this is not unusual, is it, in these kind of situations, especially with a young couple, that those relationships are tested so much, it, it might not last? Yeah, definitely. I think it was probably one of my biggest fears when when it first happened. And to the point where, you know, there was times where I asked, I, in hospital still, I was saying, you've got to leave me because you didn't sign up for this. But inside I'm going, please don't leave me, please don't leave me, you know, because, you know, I'm not sure how I could have got through it all without Lois, to be honest. But also it's, yeah, you're you're right. I think it's probably worse, you know, being a proud young man you know your ego takes a massive hit when you're known for your physicality and all of those things and all of a sudden they're the main things that have been taken away from you both you know not just you know the way you look but also the sexual side and impotence and all of those sorts of things too which aren't really spoken about much Mm. but you're dealing with it internally and then you're hoping it's not really going to be a factor but it clearly is and it's kind of this unspoken thing and I think Lois was like incredibly brave to to bring it up because now the you know the more we understand and the more we help other people through trauma, this it's not about me thing is a real not an issue, but it's so common. But actually, when I'm speaking to people who have just been through life changing injuries, which happens a fair bit, it'll never be the individual that's going through it the worst. It'll be a mother or a partner or a son or someone who loves them. They feel helpless, but also they'll be struggling, but not feeling like they can say anything. But a lot of the time, the best way to help the individual is to help the support networks. If they've got a healthy support network, then that will have a rub-off effect on the individual. And Lois did that for us. Mm. She saw our relationship falling apart. She was doing such a good job of hiding it from me that she went and sorted it out and addressed it, even though she knew that was going to be really hard for me to hear. Um, And it was the best thing that could have happened. That's a really interesting point, actually, that your recovery was always going to be better and more successful if you'd sorted you sorted all that stuff out and yeah. you could have left it years you know that's and you did it so quickly that again that's another that's another lucky thing you can add to the lucky <laughs> list isn't yeah, it yeah. um and so from then on once you'd had those candid conversations and decided what your plan of action was going to be to get yourselves back on track with within your relationship momentum seems to have just kind of really gathered because within a year you were climbing Snowden. So we've jumped ahead. We kind of need to know how the person who was told he was going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of his life yeah. a year later is climbing Mount Snowden. Yeah, I mean, I won't take you through the full one first year rehab journey, but it was like four months left hospital, still in a wheelchair. Sort of six months I was kind of standing and it was looking like there was a chance I'd be on my feet, but, you know, not guaranteed for the rest of my life. And then nine months I managed to get rid of the wheelchair and was using prosthetics and stuff. And at that point I was spending four or five hours a day in the gym or doing physio, I was very lucky to come from, you know, the NHS, don't get me wrong, saved my life and actually got stood me up in a standing frame for the first time just before I left hospital. But since then, since I left hospital, I could access the rugby community of mm. physios, chat, restart the charity, supported my rehab. Um, so I was doing four or five hours a day, but I was losing the will to live after nine months because normally you've got, you know, an aim a, a, to an use aim, that goal. You're like, yeah. I'm aiming for that game next yeah. season to get back fit for. And I follow this process and I know I'll get there, but this was open ended. So I was like, I need something to aim towards. That was one of the reasons to carry on motivating my training. But also I wanted to send a message to everyone else who was in hospital still. A lot of my friends who I'd spent time with in the spinal unit who had also been given a negative prognosis, told they weren't going to walk again or something. 
that maybe it would be possible. And I knew because there was a little bit of a shop window having been an ex-rugby player. If they at least saw me stood on the side of something, they'd just see I was standing from being in a wheelchair. So I told my physios that I wanted to, I need to do something on the year mark to you know, send this message. And they said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to climb Snowdon. And they thought I meant the two-year mark. And I was like, no, no. And they're like, Ed, that's three months away and you've literally just got out of wheelchair. I was like, yeah, but I'm not going to actually get up there. I'm just going to probably like go a few metres and then at least people will see me stood up. So we kind of bought into this crazy idea and three months later I turned up on the start line and I'd put out on social media on this blog that I was writing that anyone could come and join in, not expecting anyone to actually turn up, but there were 70 people on the start line that I didn't know who came to support and to, they might have been going through their own, a lot of them were going through their own sort of traumas, physical or psychological traumas, and just came and had the most amazing journey up Snowden. I mean, the first thing I thought was, oh no, I'm going to have to actually get to the top now because all (laughs) these people have turned up. But we did, it took nine hours or something, but it was pretty special. And it was more special because I remember being on the top surrounded by all the people that had really helped me get there. Mm. You know, it's a massive team effort to to get to that point. You've just talked about the the five hours a day of physio. Yeah. So just to, so people can kind of go from, I and mean, we're kind of rushing through what is a, you know, yeah, yeah. a very detailed story. But how did you get yourself from wiggling a toe to walking? Because you've walked in here today, and I know it's six years later now, and there's plenty more to talk about. But you've walked in here today, very comfortably. Um, you're wearing something around your your leg, which we can talk about. But you have no sticks. Mm. Um, if I saw you walking down the street, I might think you had a, a little injury to your leg that you'd done or something, and that's why you have Achilles a, you know, or ACL yeah, is normally what yeah, we get. Yeah, yeah. Something, <laughs> something along those lines. That's kind of, yeah, maybe an ACL four months down the line yeah. if, for people kind of wanting to picture yeah, what this, yeah. this walk looks like. So how did you get yourself up Snowden physically? What were you doing? And how much of this was what was going on in your mind and what was going on in your body? I mean, it's massively psychological. Obviously, if I couldn't move my legs, you, you can't outwork a complete neurological injury you mm. know it doesn't matter how hard I worked I've obviously got some connections and a lo- enough activity there but it was hours and hours of really hard work and amazing support from some very clever physios and doctors and but to be honest most of it is you willing to put the effort in outside of those physio hours I think it's setting up things at home not taking the easy routes not asking people to do stuff for you all the time and having goals in place. And were you soon- good? Sorry to interrupt. Were you good, Lois, at letting him? You know, when he oh, was at home, God. did you get you frustrated? Were making oh, me. <laughs> right. <laughs> I would be like um, sat on the sofa with Ed's stepmom and make him make us cups of tea. <laughs> Sometimes like, good, good OT. Good occupational therapy. <laughs> yeah. Tough love. Good yeah. yeah. It was boot camp at home. But, but also yeah. patience, because I imagine sometimes you're like, okay, come on, get on with it. Yeah. yeah. And don't yeah. get me wrong. There were times where Ed's dad's house had th- three flights of stairs, and you get to the bottom. And like, yeah, you learn patience, don't you? Because like Ed was so used to just being able to do everything really quickly. And then you'd have to go upstairs to the top floor, get something you've forgotten, go and get another thing. So yeah, there was still lots of lots of support. But in the end, it was like, yeah, you, yeah try and do it yourself as much as possible because you're going to have to, well, you want, want to do. Yeah. It was frustrating yeah. at times. I think it was interesting because I'd done all these pre-seasons with rugby and, you know, you've run until you're sick, basically. But I never even realised that I hadn't even scratched the surface in terms of how much effort you actually can put in if you're back Men- against... Mental effort. Mentally, if your back's against the wall. Hmm. That 48 hours before my toe wiggled and then the next sort of few weeks just trying to fire things up, I would just stare at my feet and my hands and just work so hard without hardly moving and then pass out of sleep for an hour, wake up, work really hard. And I, I realised how much more... I had in the tank and that's I've kind of carried that with me now so Snowden wasn't necessarily going to be achievable physically but I knew how much more I could push myself mentally now because having my back against the wall and having my mobility and the rest of my life and Lois's life on the line I had to dig that much deeper. So Snowden was uh, pardon the pun never going to be the peak this was always (laughs) after that experience going to be the start of something else because you realised that 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 goal setting had achieved so much in such a short period of time. Yeah, I think it was supposed to be the peak, but (laughs) when I was stood on the top, I was already thinking about what was next, you know, and um, it was probably the, it spawned the idea, not just for me to carry on and seeing where I could get to, but also probably for the charity, that community element of other people walking through with trauma and that Mm. support I felt I feel incredibly fortunate because even though I was in hospital by myself a lot of the time or just with my close friends and family, because of social media and because of the rugby community and in particular, 
it didn't ever feel like it was just me getting better. It felt like there was a lot of people behind me, which was really important. And then for that to manifest itself on Snowden in real life, I was like, I actually felt useful again. Mm. Like I, for a long time, I'd really was struggling mentally, even for the first year with, am I just going to be a burden for the rest of my life? And for the first time, I felt like actually what I'm doing could be of purpose to other people who are struggling. And that's something I really want to look at because you have a certain skill set coming into this situation from sport. Anybody who's competed at high level sport knows about goal setting, knows about visualisation and all these things that we can then carry on using in the rest of our lives. People who have a spinal injury or something very traumatic physically who haven't come from that background don't have that to access immediately, do they? So what the charity is able to do through through you, I guess, is is impart that kind of knowledge to people who aren't coming from that background. And, and I suppose it is a background of privilege in terms of knowledge, isn't it? Definitely. I think in terms of a spinal cord injury or recovering long term from physical injury, being a professional sports person is probably the best training you can get because I'd actually had, even though I was only 27, I'd had three six months rehab periods you know during my career so you understand that you get out what you put in and there's a goal setting obviously this sort of was a lot more serious and important but the same rules apply it's Mm. you know sticking to and the effort and we do do instill that you know we do sort of impart that knowledge to or encourage the beneficiaries to sort of follow that path and, and explain the importance of that side of things but I'm not sure how much of it is innate and how much of it is learnt you know mm-hmm. I think there's still a question there because some people who have never been involved in sport work harder than mm-hmm. I do at their rehab and then some people who have been involved in sport their whole life get to a situation I suppose like this the point is it can be learnt can't it yeah that you can yeah. or you can access it if you really want to be part of of that recovery process you can so Lois we've kind of dipped into the charity without giving it its name and giving its purpose so when did uh, Millimetres to Mountains actually become a thing? Yeah so we got charitable status in March 2020 we were doing a little bit of work before that but as more of an events company raising money for other charities so it was born through edge climbing these these peaks um, and us realising how important nature and challenge were in terms of recovery. But it was when we were out in Nepal, actually, and um, we got invited over there because some friends wanted our help to try and raise some funds to build a spinal unit over, over in uh, Chitwan. So we went over there met all the guys at the hospital and went on our own little three-day trek and literally had a proper gap year moment staring up at the Himalayas and we were like, we want, we need to do something that helps other people. There's just so much purpose in that. I think that was when we kind of realised that if enough good can come from such a bad situation, then it's no longer bad, right? And and so we kind of came up with our skill set, what do we... What do we do? I'd worked in events, I'd worked in sport. I knew that I could run projects, I guess. And Ed was doing more kind of motivational talks and things like that. So, yeah, we were like, let's start a charity and take people out on these amazing challenges, get them away from the everyday stresses of of their normal lives and support them in their recovery from from trauma. So the people who who come on the, the, the journeys with you, the treks, are they people who've had spinal injuries or can they be from, you know, any any kind of area of life? Yeah, so we said we've got, it's any physical or mental trauma. I think just from Ed's following at the beginning, a lot we had a lot of people with spinal cord injuries that are back on their feet mainly. Um, and then, yeah, within their three-year programme with M2M, for short, um, <laughs> they'll go on a climb at some point in that three years but we realise it's not just about the climb that can be their goal to try and get up the mountain but I also did my life coaching diploma so we were really sure that we wanted to support them through that whole journey talk to them about goal setting talk to them about how to create a purpose and how to persevere and all these skills that I guess that we we had learned through Ed's recovery process. And then, yeah, so they'll be with us financially for three years, but we kind of see it as a bigger picture of creating this M2M family for life um, and just, yeah, help them realise those, we call them our four Ps, yeah, realise those as they go through their journey with us. And the four Ps are? Test, per- purpose. <laughs> purpose, perseverance, uh, progress and... You always forget that last one. Purpose, you know, purpose <laughs> perseverance, progress and... Perspective. That's it. 
And they are the four Ps of millimetres to mountains kind of raison d'etre. They're what encapsulates everything that you want people to achieve through that period. Yeah, exactly. And and as Lois said, it started off as a physical thing. Um, other people with spinal cord injuries, but actually we quickly realised, you know, we're not trying to fix people physically. We're just trying to get people back in a positive frame of mind and excited about the future. Often the trauma's thrown them off their original path and they're trying to work things out. And, you know, a happy person in a wheelchair is way better than a sad person walking around. So we extended it to psychological trauma as well. So we've, you're a beneficiary who have been through PTSD all the way ranging to, you know, um, abuse cases or you know neurological issues as well as as physical trauma from accidents so it's a full spectrum but it's interesting because Lewis touched on the M2M family we've got this community of people from all these different backgrounds who come together to go on these walks in the outdoors and they share their stories they realize how similar their journeys are psychologically even though the mm. points of trauma are all different that psychological journey to get to that point of acceptance is very similar and they kind of heal and support each other it's been so you must have some graduates now then because it was 2020 you're now 2023 end of this year yeah yeah yeah. and we've been amazed with the progress they've made really and and the really cool thing is they've actually a lot of them have had to change their career due to their trauma and they've most of them have decided to go into something that helps others so we're now looking at this like ripple effect of if every beneficiary goes through that and then creates something else that helps more people then it's going to just be such a positive experience and yeah we've had a beneficiary go on he wants to create his own um, commercial drone business which is purely for disabled workers and employees that he can have VR headsets for people that are in wheelchairs and so that's incredible another one of our beneficiaries is leading all of our community walks so she's done her mountain leader qualification um and yeah it's now leading those so yeah it's it's so awesome like the, the the kind of family tree if you like is yeah. is going to spawn yeah. some really interesting yeah. careers for people and changes in their lives so mm. that must be enormously gratifying for both of you it to is, see that coming to fruition it's incredible isn't it it's pretty pretty moving um and i think we always wanted to take this inch wide, mile deep approach. I think we didn't want to just, as the charity grew in fundraising, we didn't just want to take more and more people on trips. We take eight beneficiaries on a year and that is capped. It will always stay that. So over a three year period, so there's only ever a maximum of 24 beneficiaries in the system. And that allows us to really turn people's lives around because it just mirrored my own recovery. In a weird way, it started because I almost felt guilty for the network I had and the support I had from my family and the rugby community and physios. And, and I realised not everyone has that. In fact, most people don't have that. Mm. And we want and I wanted to share that with other people. And that's where it started. And, and it's amazing that that support network now is growing within itself, you know, because the beneficiaries are becoming supporters of new beneficiaries. And mm. it's organically happening in a way that we never anticipated when we first started, but it's amazing. And obviously there is the, the kind of the image of a mountain and climbing a mountain is, is very powerful. And what you're doing physically is obviously brilliant. And being outside, there's the community aspect to this as well. So people who are listening to this who might not be able to access your programme, these are things that can be put into place in people's lives, can't they? And I know that you're both big advocates of the power of nature and, and being outside. Yeah, well, that's the, the great thing. So we also decided that... Our trips abroad wouldn't just be for beneficiaries. We actually really like the mix of having kind of fundraisers on there too. They get to meet the beneficiaries firsthand and know where their money is going. They also come away actually learning way more about themselves, realising that everybody's been through some kind of trauma. And on these walks, we will do some like life coaching exercises, get people to open up, get people to, to be vulnerable. So, yeah, they can access kind of everything that M2M does for the beneficiaries, but from a, from a fundraising side. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we have that opportunity 
yeah perfectly you're, you're so right like nature is there it's on our doorstep and we just ignore it most of the time i probably did i probably subconsciously i didn't realize my whole life i'd been outside mm. playing rugby or whatever it might be brought up in the countryside and then when that was taken away and i was locked in a hospital room for four months that's when you really realize how much you miss it and encouraging more people to get outside despite the barriers whether they're physical social whatever it might be you know going and taking advantage of that free green space I think it's the biggest untapped tool to a po- sort of the country's positive mental well-being or their battle against mm. negative mental well-being is is nature and just being outside and if you can combine that with support and community and relationships it just kind of supercharges everything you've touched a little bit on this with regard to the early part of your recovery and your relationship and you mentioned it uh, a little bit about opening yourself up and being vulnerable suddenly you're physically vulnerable but also emotionally vulnerable from the person the ed that was playing rugby before how much were you kind of a man who would talk about emotions and things like that when you were you know no, it wasn't at all. No, I couldn't I even get a happy classic, birthday post on Facebook. A, yeah. <laughs> I was a classic, you know, young bloke, rugby player, sort of probably makes it worse because you're taught from a young age to not show any weakness on the pitch. You know, when you're injured, don't let the other team know. And that spills over into your psyche. And it took a long time for me to learn to be vulnerable. Actually, well, I, I mean, looking back, it was pretty quick after the mm. accident. But I was keeping voice notes in a diary and... But I wasn't even showing my family or my friends. It was like what I was feeling like. Woke up one day and one of my friends was going through all the diary notes, my voice notes, and he was like, two things, mate. He's like, one, you're a weirdo. <laughs> but two, you should make some of this public because other people are going through similar things. They're in hospital, might help someone. I was really reluctant. Lois managed to talk me around about a week later. So we started posting these daily blogs, effectively, whilst I was still in hospital and... Um, I couldn't even look at the responses because it was me being vulnerable and honest and that was so uncomfortable for me. But then a week later, Lois persuaded me to look at the responses and I was getting contacted by all of these people saying how much it was helping them, but also other people who had been in similar situations who then became a massive um, crutch for me because I could be completely honest with them. I didn't mind upsetting them. I could say, I wanted to kill myself last night. You know, that's not something I would say to my family because mm-hmm. I didn't want to upset them. But I, all of a sudden I had these strangers who I could relate to. So what started as something that was supposed to help other people actually became my biggest crutch as well. And that taught me the power of vulnerability and being honest. And I've kind of taken that and run with it a little bit. Maybe a bit too, too much. <laughs> good, it's good. Yeah, you're happy, with, you're happy with the level of emotion. Oh, that you yeah. Get from. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a lo- nice level, yeah. Comparing to what you were like as a rugby player, you can definitely see the difference. And it's such a hard thing. It's probably the one of the biggest challenges that the beneficiaries face is opening up and, mm. and we, we do make it quite clear when we take people on that we do encourage the storytelling side because yeah again like I, like I said if they can see some good coming from it then then they won't think of it as this such negative thing that's happened mm-hmm. happened to them and yeah we actually had a, one of our beneficiaries realize that for the first time that actually if she hadn't had her accident then she wouldn't have been down on the Cornish coast with us met these incredible people who she now calls some of her best friends like that wouldn't have happened. So mm. you can start to, to see some positive things happening from it instead of just all being negative. And I suppose one of the hard things initially and in the first few months and years, though, is not, yep, you can say, right, I've done, I had a really nice day today. I, you know, I did this and I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't. But then you also got in the back of your mind, I could be playing for Wales this summer or I could be, you know, doing something different than helping Ed go to the toilet today or whatever <laughs> it was early on that you were having to do. So so it's, I suppose, a balance, isn't it? Those mm. those thoughts becoming kind of fewer and fewer and the, and the positive ones. Do you still, six years on, are there ever days, Ed, where you go, why did I dive into the shallow <laughs> Or are you completely through those know, kind abs- of negative thoughts? <laughs> Sometimes there's frustrations. I mean, the day-to-day admin of having a spinal cord injury isn't fun. Like I still, there's the stuff you see on the surface. Like you said, I've got foot splint on and I limp around and my left hand doesn't work properly. But it's the underlying health conditions like bladder and bowel function, sexual function, temperature regulation. They're daily admin things that are frustrating. So you have to take medication for all of those things? Medication, like I've got a drainage bag on now, you know, all those things you wouldn't see on the surface. And if any, if someone had told me that any one of those things was going to happen to me when I was a fully fit professional athlete, I'd be like, oh no, that'd be the end of my life, that'd ruin me. But actually in the context, knowing where you've come from and how lucky <laughs> you are to even be here, 
you just sort of get on with it. And and in fact, you don't get on with it. You feel grateful that you can limp around. So there's a there's a lot. I mean, we, we feel very fortunate. There's a huge amount of purpose in our lives at the moment, which for a long time was something that I really wrestled with, you know, that identity of like losing who you are because you think you're just a rugby player and all of those sorts of things that I know anyone coming out of professional sport has to deal with mm. to certain extents. But they do it, you know, most professional sports people will have a period of time where they're getting ready to do that, won't they? They're yeah. in the last figuring few years figuring out what is it that I like doing, where would I like, you know, you didn't have much time to think about no, but what the new Ed was going to be like. Ironically, do you know what I think? Actually, I've had a bit of an easier psychological shift than a lot of people because I I straight away had a bigger thing to focus on. I had to learn to walk again. So it wasn't kind of being left in no man's land. I was training for something. It was a bigger purpose. It was a horrible one. It was difficult. But I'm a trustee of Restart now that looks after the professional players in England. And, you know, it's it's such a tough process, you know, letting go of something you've done since you were a young kid and everyone knows you for and you know, then having to take that step down, whether it be your boss all of a sudden is 10 years younger than you, obviously there's a big salary hit and then trying to rework. There's, as you know, Gary, there's like so many things and, and I know from recovering from a spinal cord injury that sport gives you, you've got so many tools to carry on with your life, but that doesn't change the fact you feel like you've got to change who you are. And actually coming out of that bubble of rugby, I realised that actually it's an amazing thing and I was so lucky to do it, but there is so much more to life. Mm -hmm. And I've just really enjoyed going after stuff that I'd never have imagined I'd be doing, like rugby, like working in media, like writing a book. Like Yeah, you did a bit of, well, you've done quite a bit of presenting, haven't you, for Channel 4? Yeah, I've done yeah. some bits and got to work on the Paralympics and, you know, just all these incredible opportunities that have come from diving in the wrong end of a swimming pool. You know, it's a bit ironic. If you haven't really. noticed already, he's very good at reframing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a very good skill. Sometimes quite annoying when you just want to come home and mo moan about something. But it's like... Yeah, are you allowed to kind of have a bad day, Lois? Is that... <laughs> oh, yeah, she's allowed. <laughs> <laughs> are you allowed to get pissed off with somebody who cut you up at a traffic light and come in and start kind of ranting? Occasionally, that... no. I mean, he will still try and get it reframed, but sometimes... <laughs> You're pretty good, though. Yeah. Well, I actually would say so... Ed is, has a natural ability to reframe. Um, and for ages, we actually looked into that nature-nurture of like positive thinking and whether you, you can completely change the way you react and mm. the, the way you think. And it, it really got me interested in it. Well, we both did a um, neuro-linguistic programming course. And, and actually, I think I am a good example of being able to retrain my brain because I think I did react, not really negatively, but more negatively. And I, I definitely have, from living with you for that long um, and from practising it, doing my own reframing, doing my own life coaching course, that you can actually change the way you, you think, which, mm -hmm. is, which is brilliant. So, yeah, I think that's what we want to work on next, isn't it? We're going to try and create a course for people to try and become more positive and, and find the happiness that yeah, we Yeah, because it's, it's a very easy thing to say, isn't it, to somebody, you know, come on, be more be, yeah, yeah. Be positive. Yeah. Uh, let's, you know, or, oh, I've just met these people, Ed and Lois, and this is what happened to them, so come on, you, you yeah. know, yeah. buck your ideas up, you. But actually, it, as you say, the neural pathways sometimes yeah. don't really permit that in some it's people's brains. how you do they? see a situation, it'll be completely down to what filters you've put on that situation from your previous experiences. So you've got to tap into those and why you think the way you do, create some more positive experiences, catch yourself in the moment. Yeah, it's not as simple as, mm. yeah, just think differently. There's, yeah. there's been a huge amount of positives in terms of psychologically from having your back against the wall and having to overcome trauma or having your life on the line because you have to learn as a survival technique to let go of the stuff that doesn't matter because it just gets in the way because you're just otherwise you're just there sat staring at the ceiling worrying about where you're going to end up or how I couldn't have dived in the pool you know mm. what I could have done mm. differently mm. instead of focusing what, on what you have to do and also there's so much negativity and scary things going on if you concentrate on them, you're just going to ruin yourself. So you have your brain starts naturally reframing things. You start lo looking, scratching around for positives. And if you do that for long enough, it becomes habitual. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing we've been looking into. It's like, can you put processes in place and practices in place? Like if something happens and you feel yourself getting stressed, forcing yourself to find one positive thing in that person cutting you up in the car. <laughs> you know, it's a good, good chance to practice your patience, you know, things like that. And over time... You can change the way you naturally think. What have your wider family made of the last six years and how you two have come through this? Oh, I think they're, they're pretty proud of the charity, aren't they? And I think, yeah, we've got 
really good support from all of them in regards to coming on our trips, helping our beneficiaries, um, which has been really, really lovely to see. And I think actually our wedding was a huge part of that, wasn't it? When they, of, of a healing Yeah, process. a healing process, because they were so incredible in those that first year. Yeah, because we got married in July 2018, so we kind of used that as a an opportunity to say thank you to everybody, all of our close friends, all of our family. So, yeah, it was brilliant to have them all together and, and, and to celebrate Ed because walking back down the aisle. You talked about what how you were feeling and how you dealt with it brilliantly early on, I think, and a lot of people would have let it go for years and years. But also for your mum and your dad and your stepmom, they've mm. had to reframe the person that they thought that they were looking forward to growing old. Mm. My mum's completely fed up with me because I've gone from, <laughs> like, gone from like rugby, which she couldn't watch me play anyway, to... Breaking... Well, she was too scared to yeah, watch me play. Yeah, she doesn't like me getting hurt. So, But then breaking my neck. And she was actually like, yes, great. She's like, now finally you can wrap yourself in cotton wool, you know. And now nope. I'm off mountaineering with a disability, you know. So she just tears her hair out. But no, we were very lucky. We have got an incredibly supportive family. And and obviously for on a... For, practically my dad was so important you know he he pretty much saved my life in the pool but then being a doctor throughout this whole process is really he's somebody you can turn to and as an oracle yeah and my stepmom's amazing she just says yes to everything so she comes on all of our trips Mm. it's actually become quite a big part of a lot of some of the beneficiaries lives you know as a mentor too which is it's a bit of a family thing isn't it so yeah again that's another thing that i took for granted is my family and i'd be in hospital and every day I would have friends or family around my bed. And the pe- people next to me, or some people in there, didn't have visitors for three mm. months. And I just assumed everyone's got friends and family. Mm. So that thing I used to take for granted, you know, I don't anymore. So, um, yeah. Very Good. lucky. Yeah, very lucky, again. Well, yeah, that's 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 what you call reframing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm very lucky. But I think we've been very lucky to hear from you both today. So thank you so much for coming to chat. And I think for the, the Midpoint community, we so often focus on what goes on in midlife and changes that happen to people in midlife, sometimes forced, sometimes not, and you know, nowhere near as traumatic as, as what you went through. But actually, so much of what you've said, I think, will resonate in terms of how to how to look at a situation differently or you know, having the courage to do something that might just challenge your mindset a little bit. So thank you both. Best of luck with everything, uh, whatever the future holds. Thanks, Gabby. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. How great are Ed and Lois? I admire so much how quickly Ed turned his mind to recovery despite what the doctors were telling him and I'm grateful to them for offering such honest insight into what it's like to go through such a huge life-changing event like that together. If you're enjoying these special episodes, please let me know by leaving a rating and a review and you can hit follow wherever you're listening to this so you never miss an episode. Thank you to Spiritland Productions for producing this episode and thanks again to Ed and Lois Jackson for sharing their story with us. If you want to learn more about Ed's experience, grab a copy of his book Lucky and if you want to support their charity or find out more about becoming a beneficiary, head to millimetres2mountains.org. That's millimetres, the number two, mountains.org. Take care and I'll catch you next time.